Hello everyone and welcome to the April 6th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A constitutional challenge to the IMR process continues to work its way through the court system, and the case is now the poster child of media stories bashing cutbacks in state workers' compensation systems. The controversy was triggered by National Public Radio that continues a special series called Insult to Injury, America's Vanishing Workers' Protections. The series argues that states have nationally eroded workers' compensation benefits to the point of shifting the burden on taxpayers. The current NPR article features two California workers' compensation claims it asserts are evidence of how even California has changed its system into an intolerable and unacceptable debacle. One of the claimants, Frances Stevens has her case pending in the Court of Appeal, and if it's successful, will end the IMR process created by SB 863. Stevens was injured when she tripped on a rug and broke her foot as she carried boxes of magazines. The relatively simple break triggered serious nerve damage, and she was eventually diagnosed with chronic or complex regional pain syndrome. She claims to be mostly confined to a wheelchair, and an NPR photograph featured in the article shows her using a custom wheelchair ramp to access her handicapped van. She was awarded total permanent disability. Then a dispute arose between Stevens and the state fund about two years ago over her medical care. For several years, she had the assistance of a home health aid and use certain medications prescribed by her PTP to relieve her symptoms. In late 2012, the home health aid assisting applicant was injured and was unable to continue to provide those services. This led to the PTP to submit a new request for authorization for a new home health aid along with a request to refill for prescriptions which were submitted to UR and denied. The request was also denied after the IMR process, which took several months to complete. IMR said that medical treatment does not include homemaker services like shopping, cleaning, and laundry, and personal care given by home health aides like bathing, dressing, and using the bathroom when this is the only care needed. The applicant appealed and the work comp judge found that there was no provision for a reversal of the IMR, finding that since the labor code provides only limited circumstances upon which the IMR can be reversed. And the WCAB denied reconsideration in the panel decision of Stevens versus Outspoken Enterprises Incorporated. One of the key aspects of the Stevens argument was the constitutionality of the IMR process, an issue the California Applicants Attorneys Association has been making since passage of SB 863. In response to this challenge, the work comp judge found that the California Constitution does not allow administrative agencies to determine the constitutional validity of any state statute. 
The WCAB agreed that it could not rule on the constitutional issue and denied reconsideration, saying that it does not matter whether the reasons given for an IMR determination support the determination unless the appealing party proves one or more of five grounds for appeal listed by the legislature in the Labor Code by clear and convincing evidence. Now, the First District Court of Appeal has agreed to hear the case and this will be the first appellate court to address the constitutional challenge to the IMR process. Briefs have been filed by a great number of amicus parties, including the California Workers' Compensation Institute, the Property Casualty Insurers Association of America, the California Chamber of Commerce, Voters Injured at Work, and the California Applicants' Attorneys Association. Oral arguments have not yet been scheduled in this case, and it will be months before there is a resolution. This is, however, the case to watch for 2015, as the stakes are high. Should the IMR process be declared unconstitutional, a major provision of SB 863 sought by employers will evaporate, and medical disputes will return to the level of the WCAB. Transportation network companies, or TNCs, provide for pre-arranged transportation for compensation through online-enabled applications or platforms. In this way, they connect passengers with drivers who provide the services in their own personal vehicles. The three most widely used TNCs are Uber, Lyft, and Sidecar. So far, regulation of TNCs is in its infancy. California was the first state to regulate this new industry. But now legislation is now pending in at least 35 other states. In California, TNCs are regulated in a statewide level by the California Public Utilities Commission, while taxis are regulated by municipalities. The California Public Utilities Commission asserted jurisdiction over TNCs by classifying them as charter party carriers that are subject to regulation by the CPUC. Limousines and many shuttle services are examples of charter party carriers. State law delegates authority for regulation of taxis to cities or counties since taxis are not classified as charter party carriers. The California Department of Insurance held an investigation hearing in 2014 related to insurance issues for TNCs. As a result of the hearing, Insurance Commissioner Jones recommended TNCs provide $1 million in primary liability insurance that begins the moment the driver switches on the app. The issue of workers' compensation benefits and insurance has yet to be considered by regulatory bodies. So now the issue of workers' comp coverage may be resolved in the courts. Drivers for ride-sharing services Uber Technologies Incorporated and Lyft Incorporated argue in two different cases that they are employees and not independent contractors. This could put the tech upstarts on the hook for workers' compensation costs if court challenges succeed. In separate lawsuits filed in U.S. District Court in San Francisco, plaintiffs are seeking to represent Uber and Lyft drivers 
nationwide based upon allegations on California's labor law, since both Uber and Lyft reference the state law in their driver contracts. However, judges in both cases have limited the potential classes to drivers only in California, but the plaintiff's lawyers said those decisions likely will be appealed. Officials at the National Council on Compensation Insurance claim that if Uber and Lyft drivers are deemed employees, the companies would need to evaluate providing workers' comp coverage. Court transcripts are sealed, but according to wire service reports in January, hearings in the United States District Courts seem to be favorable to the driver's side of the argument. But final rulings have not yet been made in either suit, both of which have been pending since 2013. And the insurance industry is watching the cases closely. The National Council on Compensation Insurance identified ride-sharing services as one of the top emerging comp issues for 2015. And the National Association of Insurance Commissioners adopted a white paper this month addressing the insurance coverage gaps associated with ride-sharing services. The paper recommends a range of potential state-based regulatory solutions. Issues including insurance coverage gaps, coverage amounts and types of coverage are discussed, as well as the need for consumer outreach and education regarding these new transportation services. And now our fraud report. Detectives from the California Department of Insurance arrested 51-year-old Gonzalo Sandoval and his 65-year-old ex-wife, Socorro Lopez of Paramount, on multiple felony counts of workers' compensation fraud and attempted perjury. In 2000, Sandoval sustained a work-related injury to his back. In 2012, his ex-wife, Socorro Lopez, filed a lien with the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board against Liberty Mutual Insurance Company for $47,500, claiming she provided home health care services for her Sandoval. After filing her lien, Lopez and Sandoval both provided sworn statements regarding the home health care services performed. The couple both testified that the claims were true, although video footage taken of Sandoval contradicted the testimony. The video footage obtained by Liberty Mutual showed that Sandoval was performing activity that contradicted their testimony. Sandoval was booked at the Inmate Reception Center in Los Angeles, and Lopez was booked at Century Regional Detention Facility in Linwood. Their bail is set at $30,000 each, and both individuals are facing five years in state prison if convicted. This case is being prosecuted by the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Another Los Angeles Probation Department worker faces fraud charges. Kimberly Evans was arrested by Los Angeles County Probation Department's Special Projects Team on three felony counts and one misdemeanor count. Evans is a sworn peace officer with the Los Angeles County Probation Department and is assigned to a juvenile detention facility as a detention services officer. An investigation by the Special Projects team revealed that Evans allegedly altered medical documentation, resulting in a loss of nearly $2,000 during the time period she claimed as sick time on her time card. 
This is the latest arrest as the probation department continues to beef up its professional standards bureau to crack down on insurance fraud and employee misconduct. Within the last year, the department added a special projects team comprised of four supervisory level investigators. These investigators are specially trained to recognize the signs of workers' compensation and medical fraud. Evans was arrested on three felony counts and one misdemeanor count of fraud. She was booked at the Santa Clarita Sheriff's Station in Santa Clarita, and bail was set at $30,000. And in medical news, research presented at the 2015 annual meeting of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons identifies nicotine dependence, obesity, alcohol abuse, and depressive disorders as risk factors for low back pain. These researchers reviewed electronic records of more than 26 million patients from 13 healthcare systems across the nation, including 1.2 million patients diagnosed with low back pain. They found that 19.3% of the patients diagnosed with depressive disorder reported low back pain, as did 16.75% of patients diagnosed as obese, 16.53% of patients diagnosed with nicotine dependence, and 14.66% with reported alcohol abuse. These patients had statistically significant relative risks for low back pain when compared to other patients. According to the CDC 2012 National Health Survey, nearly one-third of U.S. adults reported that they had suffered from low back pain during the previous three months. Determining modifiable risk factors for low back pain could help avoid or diminish the financial and emotional costs of this condition. And since 2004, apportionment of permanent disability in California workers' compensation cases can be based upon causation. Perhaps this study and other similar investigations may provide more opportunities to obtain apportionment in low back injury cases. The increasing risk of drug-resistant superbug infections have been the focus of attention over the last several months as major hospitals such as UCLA report patient infections. And other health organizations are calculating what might occur should no new antibiotic be developed to combat these infections. One of the several superbugs is MRSA, or methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Now, as strange as it may seem, researchers discovered that a 1,200-year-old Anglo-Saxon remedy called Bald's Eye Salve has proven astonishingly effective in battling the MRSA superbug. According to scientists at the University of Nottingham, the potion, composed of garlic, onion, or leeks, wine, and ox bile, kills up to 90% of antibiotic-resistant Staphylococcus aureus bacteria in mice. The medieval treatment was rediscovered by a professor who specializes in disease and disability in the Anglo-Saxon and Viking eras who translated it from Old English. The 1,000-year-old Anglo-Saxon remedy for eye infections originates from a manuscript in the British Library. 
the School of English, enlisted the help of microbiologists from the university's Center for Biomolecular Sciences to recreate the portion, potion to see if it really works as an antibacterial remedy. The Leech book is widely thought of as one of the earliest known medical textbooks and contains Anglo-Saxon medical advice and recipes for medicines, salves, and treatments. Early results on the potion are, in the words of the U.S. collaborator, astonishing. The solution has had remarkable effects on methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is one of the most antibiotic-resistant bugs, costing modern health services billions. Medieval leech books and herbaria contain many remedies designed to treat what are clearly bacterial infections. Although developing long before the formal scientific method emerged, such remedies could have benefited from extensive trial and error research to determine what worked best. Many other books survive from the period with other treatments that might be similarly effective. A global hunt for new weapons against antibiotic-resistant infections was launched last year spearheaded by British Prime Minister David Cameron. The results of the research on Bald's Eye Salve were presented at the annual conference of the Society for General Microbiology in Birmingham. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB Governing Committee has proposed a surprising 10.2% premium rate reduction. The announcement cited lower medical losses, as well as indemnity and medical severities that continue to emerge below expectations. The recommendation will be submitted as a mid-year pure premium rate filing to the California Department of Insurance. The filing will propose a July 1, 2015 advisory pure premium rate of $2.46 per $100 of payroll, which is 5% lower than January 1st and 10.2% less than the approved average advisory pure premium rate. The decision was based on the Actuarial Committee's analysis of insurer loss and loss adjustment experience as of December 31st, 2014. While loss adjustment expenses continue to emerge at levels higher than expected, those higher costs are more than offset by better than projected loss experience. For the second consecutive year following the implementation of SB 863, medical severities declined by more than 4%. The significant improvement in accident year 2014 experience in large part was driven by lower than expected severity growth. The filing and all related documents will be available in the publication and filing section of the WCIRB website and the WCIRB will issue a wire story once the filing has been submitted. And California joins other states that are announcing rate reductions this month. North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory announced that an average decrease in workers' compensation insurance premium rates paid by North Carolina businesses will take effect this April. The North Carolina Department of Insurance estimates that 95% of the state's employers will see an average decrease of 3.4%. 
The remaining 5% will see an average decrease of 4.5%. These significant decreases are a welcome change from North Carolina 2014 premium rates, which were 4.2% higher than what most employers paid the year before. Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf uh, announced that workers' compensation advisory rates will decrease 5.99% for employers in Pennsylvania. This is the fourth year in a row that Pennsylvania workers' comp advisory rates have decreased. And the Ohio Bureau of Workers' Comp said employers in Ohio will see a 10.8% workers' compensation rate decrease as of July 1. The 10.8% rate cut is expected to yield a $153 million decrease in projected annual premium. These announcements verify the extremely competitive atmosphere among states to provide an attractive atmosphere for employers. The dominant model for payment of medical services has been a payment for procedure model which financially encourages doctors to provide as many medical procedures as possible without any financial incentive for a good outcome. But now, escalating costs have triggered experiments with other payment models for healthcare that focus on value. Earlier this decade, pay for performance took center stage as a tactic for realigning payment with value. And another model known as Bundled payments is being studied at the state and national level. One or combinations of these newer models may at some point determine payment under California workers' compensation. Bundled payment is a single payment to providers or healthcare facilities for all services to treat a given condition or provide a given treatment. Bundled payment asks providers to assume financial risk for the cost of services for a particular treatment or condition, as well as costs associated with preventable complications. Today, just 1.6% of payments currently flowed through bundled payment models. However, use of bundled payments is growing in both the public and private sectors. The CMS Bundled Payments for Care Improvement Initiative will pilot bundled payments programs in almost 100 settings over the next three years. And the program will be expanding even further. Both Tennessee and Arkansas are working to implement multi-stakeholder episode-based payment initiatives. Research has shown that bundled payments can align incentives for providers, hospitals, post-acute care providers, physicians, and other practitioners allowing them to work closely together across all specialties and settings. The Bundled Payments for Care Improvement Initiative was developed by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. The Innovation Center was created by Obamacare to test innovative payments and service delivery models. The Bundled Payment Model has now caused researchers to focus on the cause of costly, bad medical and surgical outcomes, research that is desperately needed. As a result, a new study from researchers at NYU Langone's Hospital for Joint Diseases identified common causes of hospital readmissions following total hip and knee arthroplasty procedures. 
The study was presented at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons annual meeting in Las Vegas. The patients in the study were part of the CMS Bundle Payments for Care Initiative pilot program, where hospitals were paid for quality of the procedures rather than the quantity. One way to measure quality is by examining the hospital's readmission rates. Thus, researchers studied 721 patients admitted for a total hip or knee arthroplasty. Of these cases, 80 patients, or 11%, had to be readmitted within 90 days. Surgical complications accounted for as much as 54% of the readmissions. These complications included infection, wound complications, bleeding, perioesthetic fracture, dislocations, and post-surgical pain. The average cost of readmissions for surgical complications was as high as $61,000. Medical complications requiring readmissions were as high as $22,000. The pilot project reported lower than average readmission rates, and by identifying the causes for readmission shown in this study, it hopes to reduce rates even further. As bundled payment programs are implemented more widely nationwide, other U.S. hospitals will hopefully follow this example and implement strategies to boost quality and reduce medical costs. The Social Security Administration has published its proposed 2016 budget and legislative agenda that includes a proposal that would require private insurers to report workers' compensation benefits that would affect the offset of Social Security disability benefits. Current law requires the Social Security Administration to reduce an individual's disability insurance benefit if he or she receives workers' compensation or public disability benefits. And SSA currently relies on beneficiaries to report when they receive these benefits. It says this new proposal would improve program integrity by requiring private insurers that administer workers' compensation to provide this information to SSA. Generally, Social Security Disability and Workers' Compensation or Public Disability Benefits are to be reduced to ensure that the sum does not exceed 80% of the pre-disability average earnings. But Social Security does not have any way to independently determine whether a beneficiary is also receiving workers' comp benefits or governmental disability benefits. Instead, Social Security relies upon the beneficiary to report when they are receiving such benefits. The potential for fraud or underreporting is very apparent. This proposal would call for the creation of a system to report the amount of workers' compensation benefits received by the beneficiary. This proposal is substantially similar in principle to the Section 111 mandatory reporting requirement for benefits and settlements to Medicare. While the goal of reducing fraud is certainly meritorious, the proposal would shift the burden of reporting workers' comp and public disability benefits to governmental entities and workers' compensation insurers. The burden may be increased if the Social Security Administration requires releases from the beneficiaries prior to disclosure. The proposal does not suggest an effective date. 
However, it is quite likely that the effective date would be approximately 12 to 18 months after any such legislative proposal became law. That is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I am Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.